Welcome to episode 192 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. November 16th, 2012 is the day I officially became engaged to my wife. Two months earlier, my wife surprised me with a wonderful proposal, which she declared was not really a proposal, but that's a longer story for another time. A couple of months later, I'd been searching for the perfect moment to pop the question. We were laying across our bed at the end of a long day, one of a string of long days my wife had been experiencing at work. To help her reframe her situation, I asked her what she would remember about this time period 10 years from now. A moment later, I had reached into my nightstand and presented her with a ring we had chosen together. I realized that I didn't need to find the perfect moment. Her earlier faux proposal was the perfect story already. Here we are, nearly a decade later, and she's no longer at that job. Looking back, we think about how we decorated our Christmas tree in mid-November while waiting to connect with family about the good news and wanting to shout it from the rooftops. Today, we find ourselves in another challenging situation, one the whole world is experiencing with us. Ten years from now, when I look back, will I remember grocery stores being depleted because everyone was hoarding Will I remember how, or how worried I am about our country and the world economy and whether it will ever recover? Maybe I'll remember how I made a smart pivot in my business, helping event organizers incorporate networking into virtual events as a virtual event consultant and MC. What do I want to be known for 10 years from now? How I respond now over the next three months needs to be aligned with that larger vision or I won't build the momentum I need to achieve that lived reality. I believe we will remember who, quote, showed up. And that's what I want to be known for. So I'm going to keep finding creative ways to do that. What about my kids? When they are 12 and 14 years old, what will they remember about this time in their lives? My hope is they'll remember spending lots of time together, playing games, baking, walking in the cemetery, which is, you know, social distancing approved, and getting to sleep in because there was no bus to catch. Your challenge this week, 10 years from now, what will you remember about these challenging times? Spend time now creating great memories. 10 years from now, how do you want to be known? Take action now that will lead you further along that path. How will you show up now? That is what matters. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest's driving purpose is to empower and help others overcome mental obstacles in order to live healthy, happy lives and reach their maximum potential. She's the visionary behind Muse, the award-winning headband that makes meditation easier. Before co-founding Interaxon, the makers of Muse, she was not only trained as a neuroscientist and psychotherapist, but also started her own international clothing line. With her creativity, entrepreneurial drive, and fascination with the brain, it's not surprising that her startup allows people to control computers with their minds. She and her team have been featured in over 1,000 media pieces, including TED, CNN, Forbes, Fortune, Wall Street Journal, and they are the recipients of multiple innovation awards. 
She's the host of Untangle podcast, keynotes around the world on technology, mindfulness, and entrepreneurship, and supports and advises a variety of startups. Please join me in welcoming Ariel Garten. Hello, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us in your office in Toronto. We are in very interesting times. The, uh, the context of the show still holds, though. We are talking about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. Both networks and leadership are prime right now. So, so tell me, Ariel, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? A leader is somebody who's able to see a direction that is so compelling that other people want to follow them. And a leader, sh- a leader is somebody who has a style that is so engaging that people want to work for them. Now, there are lots of people who are leaders and can see something and want to drive people towards there, but they are awful to work with. That does not make great leadership. Or people who are wonderful to work with, but don't actually see where we can all go. They don't see a driving direction. They can't galvanize people towards something. And neither of those on their own make leaders. So you have to have both the vision, the ability to get people together to execute, and you have to be great at working with people. Tash, I really appreciate your distinction on that because we know so many people who think they're just right and they lead in a more dictatorial kind of way and no one wants to work with them. Uh, It's like, that's not going to work. And it takes people sometimes years, if not a lifetime to learn that. So thank you for that distinction. When did you start realizing that? Well, what were your early days around leadership? So I was definitely a leader early on. Um, I was the kind of kid who in my report cards, it says she can tend to be bossy. Um, I noticed it in my son as well. He's like, oh, let's get everybody to do this thing. Um, That was obviously not a great leadership style. As I evolved, my first business was, my first real business was in my 20s. As soon as I graduated university, I had a clothing line um, and I store in my, in Toronto. And I had numerous interns who worked for me. And I, at that point, had developed my leadership skills significantly and would teach them and tend them and understand what was inspiring to them and support them and, you know, get them to see who they wanted to be in the world. And I've since met some of them. They said like, wow, you've really changed my life through that experience. And that's when I was only 22 years old. So I I would say that was probably the beginning of my leadership. Um, um, Really both having the vision and the direction and the ability to work both ways with people and support them from from the bottom up. Well, I I want to dig a little deeper into this journey though, from when you were being called bossy, which is a label that gets used a lot with girls even now, and being 22, which is still really young and Super able dead. to lead really differently than, than then. So back in the days of the playground, <laughs> back, <laughs> back in, even in high school, you know, what was it like for you to, I mean, what were, you, what were your intentions around the actions you were taking? I mean, like people were perceiving you as bossy, but what were your intentions around those actions? I usually felt like I had a great idea and that we should do it. And it's it's funny because that's something that has definitely not gone away. So my business trajectory is, is quite interesting. So when I graduated university, I started a clothing line. Um, and then I opened a retail store. And then after that, I started working with Steve Mann. He was the inventor of the wearable computer. And he was working with an early brain computer interface system. And 
I recognized that we could take that technology out of the lab. And from there, I got together two friends and built a business, which is now a multi-million dollar business, creating a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate that use used all over the world. And it was that same sensation of like, I can see that there's this great idea and I am totally sure that I can do it. Um, and the idea was so compelling that people just wanted to come on board with me. In my clothing design company, it was the same way. It was like, okay, we're going to do this crazy fashion show and I'm going to rent a trailer and me and all of my friends are going to you know, stand on the trailer as it drives throughout town, which could also have been a terrible idea. It turned out it was a fabulous idea. Um, or, you know, we're going, I'm going to create this line and I'm going to go out and go from store to store and sell it and put together a team. Like I was always seeing where the world could go and compelling people to get there. And I think with Muse, um, the brain sensing admin that helps meditate, what was really different there was that this thing that we were creating was so compelling. Everybody wanted to get in on it. And so, you know, it started from me and my two friends and very quickly it was like, clearly Ariel's going to be the CEO. She's the one who like, you know, has the driving vision. And we're now a team of 70 people uh, in three offices. That's all really amazing. I, I, let me, let me go back, just unwind for a second. Yeah. You went, what, what happened though, between high school and 22 years old? Like who was giving you lessons around better leadership styles? Because clearly for you to have the impact you had on those interns, right? Like they're telling you that decades later. Was there someone who saw that in you, who who you looked up to, where you were emulating? Like what were your opportunities? Were you Did you run for office or were you kind of behind the scenes making things happen? Like what kind of kid were you in that sense? I was, I was never a behind the scenes kid. Actually, I was both. I, I didn't want to be behind the scenes, but I love to create things. So, you know, in the school play, I acted lead in some school plays. I was the costume designer in other ones. I was the set designer. Um, so it might have been backstage, but it was still like, you know, like a key role where I was making something that was big that people were going to see. So I was definitely a kid who was always out there that people were, were seeing doing stuff. Um, I don't know where the people part came in. I've always been very nice and very kind and really cared for people. Um, I think when I was younger, I had a bit of a not like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. You asked a fascinating question that nobody's ever asked before. And I'm trying to think of the answer. I love this, Robbie. <laughs> That's my goal. That's always my goal for this show. That is brilliant. You just came up with something that nobody has ever asked me and possibly stumped me and a you know deep psychological question. You are wonderful at this. So let's say magic happened and you'll come back and tell us what the magic was if you think of it. But I, I am I'm really moved by how you were able to shift from labeled bossy in grade school to having the way I'm interpreting what you're describing around the way you showed up in the world is that you always wanted to have an impact. So whether yes. you were taking the lead or you were doing like the set piece that was like key to the play, both of those roles are about having a visible impact. Absolutely. That, okay. So how does that translate then into the work that you ended up doing? I mean, because like this clothing line was also about having a visible impact. It changes the way people feel about themselves you know, clothing makes the person kind of experience. And now, of course, fast forward to the all this amazing work you've done with Muse. Is there, is there a through line that you see now looking back that maybe wasn't there as you were kind of making your way through 
your career path? Uh, impact definitely is a huge one. Um, with Muse, there's now literally hundreds of thousands of people who use the device to meditate. Like Mayo Clinic uses it with breast cancer patients awaiting surgery and to improve quality of life and reduce the stress of cancer care. Um, so, you know, as we went to build Muse, we recognized that if we could teach more people to meditate, we would be doing something good for the world. And there's a specifically the part of impact that is really interesting to me is helping people understand that the narratives that you have in your head don't need to hold you back. That the feelings that you might have of, I'm not good enough, you know, I don't know if I can do this, that all of those thoughts in our head that keep us small and locked in, that those are things that we don't need to be heeding all the time, that we don't need to be prisoners of our own mind. And if there is a, you know, a real driving through line, it's the idea of freedom and possibility. We can create whatever we desire. We can make the world we want. We can make the lives that we want. And I want everybody to know and understand that within themselves. And so coming sort of full circle from there back to me at 22, you know, encouraging these younger girls to, you know, be the best they could be. I think that was something that was interesting to me even then, um, that we could all create what we want in the world and we could all recognize within ourselves the capability to accomplish whatever we want. And that's a capability I always felt. You know, I didn't have the skills to raise money yet. I just went and I figured it out and raised like 18 million bucks for the company. I didn't have the skills to sew. We, we've talked about my clothing career here, but let's be very clear. I had, I am the worst seamstress. I am terrible but that didn't stop me. I went and I hired some seamstresses. I put an ad in the newspaper um, and hired seamstresses to execute the designs that I would literally hot glue together and bring to their homes and say, can you just make this actually real for me, please? Um, so I always wanted people to know that they could be the, the, the amazing people we all are and they didn't need to be held back by any belief otherwise. It's such a strong message and I, I can sense how much you deeply believe that. Where does that deep belief come from for you though? Was there someone who really held that up for you and demonstrated it? Like that it's so profound that you have that and that you share that and you give other people that, but it's not something that everyone has innately. I was incredibly lucky that both of my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, my mother is incredibly loving. She was truly unconditionally loving and she's an artist. So she would, you know, imagine something and make these beautiful large scale oil on canvases. So I learned from a young age that you could just imagine what you wanted and create it. Um, and that of course, in your life, you were going to be an entrepreneur and you were going to go and make whatever you thought was possible. Um, and so they were very, very, very supportive, very loving, very positive, and, and very much allowed myself to flourish as me. Um, and that was an incredible gift that I received from them um, and a gift that now I, I hope to be able to pass on in whatever way I can to other people to help, to help them exist as, as the ones they want to be. I just was speaking to a guest who said I, that she has two entrepreneurial parents. And when she became an entrepreneur, they said, but you did all this schooling. Like you could be a doctor or a lawyer. Like <laughs> they were a little nervous. Of course she made it. And then now they're like, it's amazing. You fly around the world. So was there, was there any apprehension from your entrepreneurial parents who understood the up-down journey of an entrepreneur's life? Or were they, you clearly have a drive, you will figure it out, you're a go-to, get it done kind of person? Oh, there was never a question. Um, you also have to remember like when I was 16, I started my clothing line. 
Um, when I was five, I had a lemonade stand that sold premium lemonade, <laughs> like raspberries and stuff in it. Like this is just so deeply in the blood, um, both from my parents and from me. Um, the family business was, uh, we rent, had a couple apartments that we rented. And at 12, I was like renting out the apartments for them. Um, and I would go and tell people these beautiful stories about the apartments and all of the details in them. I was like, I love being a rental agent at 12 or 13 years old. So, you know, in my family, there was never any question about being an entrepreneur. What was weird to me and to my parents was the thought of working for someone else, like giving up your labor, the precious hours that you have in your life to to you know work for tide and make better clothing detergent which already exists like that that all seemed like a waste of time and a waste of life um uh, no offense that like no offense meant but to me it was really about doing something that was going to make the world better in some way i have to say you and i share some some fun uh, history here i i also have a, have a parent who um, had a flea market booth when I was between like ages eight and 14. And I can't think of how many lessons I learned in those years, you know, particularly working for your own parents. If you have time to lean, you've got time to clean. <laughs> um, but also like customer service and upselling and doing math in my head and, you know, being that precocious 10 and 12 year old who, who, who knew how to talk to adults and knew how to sell to them and had no fears about that. And I, I mean, it's such a it's such a wonderful gift to give, and it sounds like you took that. I was also, you know, you know like you said, like started my own candy business that grew into a bagel business. This is all in high school. <laughs> you know, you never <laughs> know where these things will evolve. <laughs> um, what if if it wasn't parental support and it wasn't a deep belief in yourself? What was the challenge as you in that first in that first big um, business that you set out to do? What was the challenge you were facing? I mean, clearly seamstressing, like if that's a word, <laughs> um, sewing was not your thing. So you found a way around that. But was there a belief or was it more like getting around those, those more tangible things like you needed someone else to do this particular project, this piece of the project? So it really never felt like there were any barriers, um, which is nuts to say because there was a million barriers. You know, I was 20 something years old. I had uh, poor sewing skills. I had no formal business background. And yet I was about to become a successful clothing designer. Um, but I just had this deep belief that whatever it was, I could do it and figure it out. And I did. And ultimately opened a very small retail store and then um, started doing Fashion Week in Toronto, then got a rep in the US who would then sell my, my clothing throughout the United States. Um, and then found larger scale manufacturers and you know, fabric suppliers. I just figured it all out. Um, it wasn't a particularly profitable business. It was the, the economies of scale were terrible. <laughs> um, you know, labor wasn't going to get cheaper the more skirts that I made, in, at least not in Toronto. Um, so ultimately, my father convinced me to close it because it was just not a great business, even though I was like, you know, by that point, 25, had been in the paper multiple times, was a clothing designer. I feel like people knew me, like stuff. I today, uh, this is now 20 years later, literally, um, I was just walking down my back alley and a neighbor, we started chatting and uh, she said that she has in her closet clothing that she purchased for me. I'm like, have we ever talked about that? She's like, nope, I've never told you, never knew. You don't know who I am, but like, I have your clothing. It's like, that's mind-blowing. Um, so like I was, you know, quite successful. My dad's like, nope, shut it down. Sorry. This is, this is just not going to make you money. He was, he was a smart enough entrepreneur to see where the dollars were going. Wow. So that ended up being the challenge really was scale didn't make sense. Like, scale did the economy, not make sense. Kind of the so scale it, weren't there. 
you know, but you had support to help you figure that out. You didn't have to spend 10, 10 years working on it to figure that out. I mean, that's, that's having community around you, having that family who get it. That's, that's awesome. So you somewhere along the line became a neuroscientist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so became simultane- a psychotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So simultaneous university, uh, um, trained in neuroscience. Uh, and then after the clothing line was shut down, um, I had started seeing a psychotherapist earlier and I decided, okay, well, you know, I need to pick a new career cause it's not going to be clothing. So I then trained as a therapist and opened my own private practice. And along the way, continued to work with uh, Professor Steve Mann, who's the inventor of the wearable computer, with this early brain computer interface. So I was doing the, and, and I had been working with it sort of throughout my clothing history. Um, I also worked in research labs along the way. I, I really did a lot. Before you have kids and before you have uh, real responsibilities, it's unbelievable how much you can accomplish. You know, now I'm lucky if I get a few hours of work on my computer, deal with my child, clean the house and give my husband a hug. But somehow I was extraordinarily productive in my younger years and then managed to found the startup, which, you know, it's 2010. I am a small hippie haired female from Toronto who does not look like a tech CEO, but because I had this galvanizing idea, um, founded the company, became in 2010 the CEO in tech far before it was cool to be such a thing and went down to the valley and raised a significant amount of money. Well, one of the things that I imagine might have been both challenging and maybe also helped you stand out as a you know, female founder is, is what's shouting in my head. It's like, you weren't just a founder who didn't fit in. You were a female founder. And like, how did that play out, particularly in 2010? Um, what, what was that like? Was, it, what did, was that a challenge at all? Or was that just like not even thought about? I never thought about it, but obviously other people did. So I don't know, you know, how many VC pitches I did where I didn't get funding because of my status as a female, um, or perhaps my status of, you know, never running a company or never working for another company or um, not really having a background in technology as a neuroscientist, but not a technologist. Um, so there, you know, I had lots of reasons why somebody wouldn't invest in me, but ultimately found one investor, then two, and then folks like Ashton Kutcher and like Felicis, the CEO of Fit, like the venture investors in Fitbit and really incredible venture investing firms to invest. And along the way, I, you know, I felt like I was just doing my thing. And it wasn't until 2016, 2017 that being a female really became a big deal. When we started to see the the shift in society and upholding um the need for women's equity and equality. And yes, obviously that's been going on since the 1960s, but you know, just in the past few years, we've seen a dramatic shift and to the point where California says you need to have uh, females on your board and there's investment funds specifically for females. Um, but I was kind of flying under the radar until then. And there are times when being a female was definitely advantageous in 2014 or 2015, I was named one of the 50 best and brightest in technology. And 50 of us were flown to an island in Hawaii to have this like secret um, rendezvous with the 50 best and brightest in technology. And you look around and the people were extraordinary. And there were maybe three women in these 50 men. 
And let me tell you, being in a beach in Hawaii, uh, one of one woman with forty-seven men is going to be an advantage. So there's certainly times when you know me being a rare bird has helped me move forward. And I'm sure, you know, I showed up in San Francisco to start pitching my product and raising money with you know no pitch background and knowing nobody. And being a female was definitely advantageous. I showed up and I met somebody. They took me to a dinner with a whole bunch of their friends. I pulled out the tool that I was making. Everybody said, wow, that's amazing. Um, And people wanted to talk to me. People were compelled by me. And so I think as much as being a female um, has likely been a disadvantage, being a female has definitely been an advantage and, and certainly from a networking perspective. Um, because there was this, you know, this fascination, like who is this cocky young female who's like willing to do all these things? I want to talk to her. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I think you're right. Like you, you never know the, the, the impact it will have in either direction, but you have lived it. Um, I'm, I'm curious, this last piece you just said about, you know, you show up in, in the Bay Area, not knowing anyone and having to weave, you know, not having a background on pitching either. And needing to sort of leverage these networks. So who, who was your first call? Like, how did, like, how did you approach? I mean, I, I don't imagine you just like walked in blind. You're, you're the type probably did some research and like had, had a plan in place, I imagine. Like, nope, I, I walked in pretty damn blind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's, let's talk about the, the raising money story because it's really funny. So around 2011, uh, I realized that I would need to raise money for the business. Um, and I was speaking at a conference in Paris, Le Web, um, and it, that was quite astonishing. Like I just got a call out of nowhere, like, you know, this is Europe's biggest tech conference. We would like you to give a keynote and talk about your amazing technology. So there I did the keynote. I met people. Um, one wonderful man named Oren Michaels, he became an advisor and later an investor and, and dear friend. And uh, he lived in San Francisco. So I now knew one person who lived in San Francisco. Um, and I then went back to Toronto, realized he was the one who convinced me that I should be raising money for this business. Um, I realized I needed to raise money. I was invited to speak at MIT. Um, and I'm like, okay, MIT is in Boston. There are investors in Boston. And so I had an intern because... I love my interns. When you don't have any money, you need interns. At, at that point, it was not illegal to not pay your intern and just give them uh, uh, knowledge and experience. And I had an intern find every VC in Boston, as far as we could tell, and email them. And three VCs got back to me and said they want a meeting. Um, all three were Canadian. And that's the only reason they took the meeting. They took pity on a fellow Canadian. Um, I got trained in how to pitch from Mars, which is our local accelerator. And so they worked with me on the deck and pitching. Before I went, I pitched to a company called Omer's Ventures. I figured, okay, they're this huge, big investment fund in Toronto. They will never in a million years invest in me. I could do like my throwaway pitch to them. The irony of it is that they actually led my Series B four years later. <laughs> um, so I did my throwaway pitch. I was super nervous. They, they gave me some like weird feedback on my pitch. I went off to Boston. Um, I met with my three Canadians. I developed a warm relationship with one of them who I'd, you know, repeatedly follow up on and and try to learn more, get more connections and introductions from him. Um, uh, The other two didn't, you know, particularly gel to me. And then I was like, okay, well, there's money in San Francisco. I better go to San Francisco. So uh, I knew one person, Oren Michaels. Um, 
first we started going to San Francisco, me and my two co-founders. Um, actually, no, it was, it was just me that went first. Yep. I only went back with my co-founders when the investors actually needed to meet them. So I went down to San Francisco and the one person I knew, Oren Michaels, let me stay in his apartment because he wasn't there. So he had an apartment in the uh, Four Seasons residence. So here we are, totally broke startup. I'm staying in this tiny one bedroom in the Four Seasons residence. Um, I go out, I meet somebody who then invites me to dinner with their friends, a story I'm telling you. Um, and there are a whole bunch of people at this dinner and I pull out the muse, which I made. And people are like, oh my God, what is that? And I tell them and they're like putting it on their heads and taking photos of it. And then one of them was an investor from Bessemer Ventures, which was crazy. And he like tweeted about it. I'm like, oh my God. And so I just then made friends with those people. And then those people introduced me to other people. And uh, from there, I now have a beautiful network of wonderful friends in San Francisco. And it all, I know the next, I'm going to let you ask the next question, but I'm going to guess it's like, how do you have the balls or the gall to do that? <laughs> well, and I also want to know how you met that one person who then invited you to dinner. Like, like you skipped a little bit of that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the, the details. I'm trying to remember the details of how I ended up at that dinner. I'm not sure if it was like a, an introduction from Oren saying, you know, this um, friends of mine are having dinner at this place, go show up. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, I, and I think that is the next question, though. I mean, you, you had a deep belief in what you were working on. Um, you know, you saw that it, you saw the potential of it. But, I mean, that's just true for most people who are entrepreneurs pitching. That's true. <laughs> you know, so what sets what set you different? you know, your willingness to then walk up to people and mostly men and go to a dinner with like mostly men who are probably the investors like, and, and go there. Like what gave you that? I'm going to use the word chutzpah here. Chutzpah is <laughs> a perfect word. I have chutzpah in spades. Um, I had a deep confidence in myself and a belief that people would be interested in what I was doing. And when I talk to people about networking, um, and people say like, oh, I'm scared to go up to that person. I'm scared to talk to them. Like, what if I'm imposing? The truth of the matter is people like other people and people are curious about other people. And people, you know, if you're a young, engaged entrepreneur with ideas, people generally want to meet you and they're curious about you and they want to usually help you and support you. Um, and, and actually, that's true even more in California, where there really is this culture of helping and supporting entrepreneurs up through the ranks. And so, you know, when I go up to meet someone, it is with the belief that I have something to share that they're going to be into. And that tends to be the case. So I'm never afraid to meet someone because I'm never afraid that they're going to not want to talk to me. Yeah, there's a sense of knowing your value. I mean, that's what I'm hearing in, in your story there. And a lot of people really doubt that. And, you know, I, I've taught people to network in all kinds of scenarios, but I always talk about job hunters because that's a moment when you could feel like you're really in a deficit because you need, you need a job. But if you instead thought about what you could offer, like the right fit is you helping, another organiz helping an organization, like your experience, your enthusiasm, your skills could be offered to this organization and if you've ever hired, you know how hard it is to hire. And if you met someone at a, at a 
you know, cocktail event who seemed like a great fit, like how much it would make you feel relieved <laughs> um, going back to the office to look at through the resumes and find their resume there and like act and act on it. Like, I, I, I just think that the idea that you have something that other people would be interested in is one that a, a lot more people could hold on to and would make the idea of networking less scary because it's really about connecting. Yeah. And the truth is that we all have things other people are interested in because people are interested in people. Like it doesn't have to be something weird or special. You don't have to be like, oh, well, I'm not special. Oh, they're not going to talk to me. Like, what do I have to offer to this high fluting person? It's like, you're a person, you know, you, you have somebody you're probably kissed once, you know, you, you have a dinners that you've made, you have pets that you have that they may or may not also have. Like literally we are all just people and we are fascinated by other people. And we like to feel good by talking to people and feeling included. It's really very basic. And, you know, when I went and I chatted with this first, you know, group of people in California, I didn't really know my value then. Um, I discovered it through that conversation. I was actually quite surprised how engaged they were with me um, and how curious they were about what I was building. And it was from that that I gained further confidence. Um, and early on, I think the, the chutzpah impetus was like, I have this thing I really want to sell. Like I, there's this thing I really want, which is to get VC money. Um, and I am just going to go and turn over every stone until I find it. And as I started to talk to people and turn over those stones, I began, I unearthed the value that I had to them. I unearthed what they, what I thought they thought was interesting in me or my product and continued to understand that and and refine that and, you know, and shift the pitch and the kinds of conversations that I was having um, as I became more and more versed in understanding what that value was. I'm really glad that you shared that because I think people imagine someone like you as being this overnight success and they don't see the decade that it takes to like build that craft and, and measure your words and try things differently. And like you didn't walk in knowing your full value, but you through those experiences learned it. And that that's a lesson that people can hear in this conversation and hopefully apply in their own situations. And, you know, I was, I'm a very confident person, like an, a, clearly an extremely confident person, but you know, there's always definitely, you know, walking into that table, a part of me that was shy or scared or like, what the hell am I doing? Or how is this going to go? But it just didn't matter because I wanted the thing on the other side so bad. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you just cut through it, you push through it and you, do the thing. Um, I'm also a person who likes experiences. So the experience of being a little uncomfortable is not, not too, too, too adverse to me. Just like, okay, this is the moment, you know, this is the experience of it. We're pushing through and let, let's see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Oh, I mean, I'm just listening to you and thinking about all the people you've met throughout your career, both, you know, with this piece of technology, but also before when you were in fashion and, I, I mean, first of all, it's a pretty vast network of people that you know, and even a larger community of people who know you, um, follow you and, and appreciate your work. So when I think about staying in touch with people, I think about your innermost sort of circle, which is people you never forget to stay in touch with. And then there's sort of the second and third layers out. It's the people maybe you met once a year at a conference or worked with five years ago or even a decade ago, or just people you've crossed paths with and you really enjoy. And it's it's a question I guess I have is around how do you, how do you sustain and nurture those kind of connections? Like what are your habits, your philosophies, uh, your practices around that? Okay. It's a hard one because I know 
so many people. And more than that, far more people know me than I know them because, you know, I'm standing on stage with audiences of two or 3000 people. Um, and so somebody will come up to me and say like, oh, I saw you at a conference and I'll be like, oh, hi. And they're like, no, you were on stage. Um, like you won't know who I am. I'm like, but I want to know you. Um, so it, it becomes challenging. Um, there's definitely a network of inner people and my best friends and the people that I work with that I stay very closely in touch with. There's a second tier of, you know, my, my contacts in San Francisco who, whenever I go out there, I will reach out to a subset of them and say, Hey, you know, let's go for dinner. Let's go for coffee. I'm going to be in town. What would, you know, what should we do? Um, Facebook also makes it very easy to keep up with people and feel like you have a maintained connection when you comment on somebody's posts or like them and, and continue that connection, even though it's in a very lightweight way. And then there's an extended, you know, far, far extended network of other people who I've, you know, met at conferences, spoke to once, probably have really meaningful business opportunities with, have lots of stuff in common, but simply don't have, neither of us have the time unless there's a very specific thing that they've reached out to me for, um, or a very specific thing I've reached out to them for. And in those cases, it's kind of with with the understanding that we are humans and we like each other, that if somebody will reach out to me, I'd do my best to get back to them in whatever way I can to be um, to be facilitating of somebody else's needs, um, to, uh, you know, to offer people my support whenever, you know, for whatever it is. Um, but it becomes, it becomes difficult when the network becomes big and the stakes kind of change a little bit. It's sort of the understanding that there is a network. And so you can tap into it at any part without really needing to maintain too much connection. Another way that it becomes easy for me to maintain a connection over time is to show up at the same events every year. So, you know, I'll, I, there are conferences that I've spoken at for three or four years in a row. And so there's this de facto network of people who exist in these conferences that I might only see once a year and cursorily at that because there's maybe, you know, a thousand people at the conference. But it creates this sense of continuity that strengthens the relationship, even though there's not a lot of deep contact or even, you know, one-on-one -on -one contact or email follow-up. Um, I think another thing that plays to my favor, again, is the, the belief that everybody is awesome and valuable. And so whenever I do have a conversation with somebody, it's, it's engaging, I'm listening, I'm excited to meet them, I'm curious. And that, that kind of connection goes a long way in allowing one another to remember each other, even after a significant period of time. Wow, I really appreciate your honesty about the differences when the scale of the network is is that different, which you grew into over time. You know, you you earned your way into that space. There's a couple of things you said that I want to highlight. One is that that when busy people reach out to you as a fellow busy person and they are really specific about their request, it's easier for you to support them. I think the mistake a lot of people make when they're reaching out to busy people, which is a lot of people that they look up to is they ask sort of these long-winded, vague <laughs> questions. And it's like, you don't even have time to read that. So that was kind of helpful. Yeah. Actually, the worst is when somebody reaches out and says, can, can I go for coffee? Oh, right. Because um, <laughs> I do not have time to go for coffee with people. Yeah. Um, I literally don't have the time to walk downstairs in my building and out to, you know, a block away to go for coffee. If you reached out and said, 
here are the things that I'm thinking. Can we follow up with a quick call? That would be perfect. I'd be thrilled to support you. Or if you reached out and said, hey, you know, we haven't spoken in eight years, but I'd really like a connection to this person that I see in your network. Awesome. Totally not a problem. Um, I find that much more effective than, hi, can we grab a coffee? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, Dory Clark's a good friend of mine and, and uh, she similarly has this vast network. And she, it's sort of like my joke with her is that if she went for coffee all those times, she'd be so over caffeinated and get nothing done. <laughs> like <laughs> there just wouldn't be anything happening. The other thing you said that I want to underscore was that you go back to the same events multiple years that, that, that uh, this sort of, I think of it as intensive networking, whether it's, you know, three times in three months or three times in three years. By going back, you establish a connection and, and a rapport and, a, and a, you become a regular, you become known and people know you and it's just easier to pick up the thread from one year to the next. You don't have to have talked the whole time, but you also are getting on stages and adding value. So like being the speaker, people see you, they know you. So there's like all these ways to sort of stand out. Um, we're moving though to like my favorite sort of wrap up question here, um, which is if we were to reconnect a year from now and we were reviewing all that you have accomplished in the previous year, what would we be celebrating? So this is a fascinating question given the, you know, time and place that our world is in. Um, you know, at the time of recording this podcast, we are all in a, a form of house arrest, <laughs> you know, vol- voluntary confinement to our own homes so that we don't spend, spread pandemic to one another. So if a year from now we reconnect and there's something that I was incredibly proud of, it will be, you know, navigating these times with grace and wisdom. It will be supporting my my family and my kid with calm. And it will be creating content and value that supports my community. Um, and it will probably be also the launch of a new muse. So muse, as we talked about, is a it's a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It helps you um, understand when you're focused and when your mind is wandered to help you establish a meditation practice. So, you know, when I think about what's going on in, these, in, in this current pandemic time with the levels of anxiety and distraction, trying to work from home with your kids sitting in your lap um, and stress, you know, the tool that we make is, is critical for helping people navigate through this moment. Um, and we also just built a sleep tools. Um, which is also incredibly helpful given that you know most people are not sleeping because their minds are racing with worry um, or you just don't have time with all the new things you have to do in one single day without school and a nanny and all these other things. So, you know, a year from now, it will be having served you know, tens of thousands more people, helping them find calm and peace and focus and, you know, manage the, the difficulties, the anxiety, the grief, whatever it is that has come up that they're going through. Well, I cannot wait to celebrate all that with you. And I haven't actually shared this with you, but I am a Muse user. So. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're actually making me think I need to get back to it. This is the, I, you know, you ebb and flow with use of those. It's like, I did it, I did it. And then I forgot about it for a little while, but it's charging. So I'm able to use it again tonight. Um, so thank you for that gift you give to the world. Um, so how can people find you and follow your work? Um, that's awesome. I had no idea. Um, so you can find me at Ariel's Musings on Instagram, ariel.garten um, on Twitter and uh, choosemuse.com or at choosemuse on any of the channels. 
Fantastic. We'll have all those links in the show notes as well as your link to your TEDx talk, uh, all at ontheschmooze.com. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really fun conversation. My pleasure. It's been a joy. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ariel. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 192. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you're moving a live event online, please remember that networking is a top driver for why people choose to attend events. Virtual events can be just as engaging and create amazing community connections. I can help you do this. Are you curious what this could look like? In the show notes, I put the highlights reel from Danny Innie's virtual lift event that I emceed a couple of weeks ago. It's quite something to check out. So check that out and then start a conversation by sending me an email. My email address is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Ariel, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions. They have them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.